0: Listening to Ethnic Life Story, Trail of Trees, Episode 26. Reynaldo Gumusio. (music) Ethnic Life Story, Trail of Trees is a tribute project started by Springfield businessman Jim Malden in the early 2000s. Then more than a decade later, the project reached Friends of the Garden at Nathaniel Green Close Memorial Park in Springfield, Missouri. Black gum trees were planted in 2012 at the northern edge of the park and symbolize the legacy left by ethnic community leaders. Each tree stands for an Ozark citizen who has left a lasting positive impact on their community through service, generosity, and tenacity. Each story is maintained and immortalized by a story-keeper, who has volunteered to ensure the legacy of the storyteller lives on. I arrived in this world in Cocobamba, Bolivia, in the heart of South America, on April 29th, 1939, the youngest of 13 children born to José Luis Gamusio and María Cáreñas de Gamusio. I was born at home, delivered by a midwife, two months premature, and was only about the size of a large ear of corn, or so I've been told. Many people, including Italians, think the name Gamusio is Italian. It isn't. The name is Spanish and originated in the Basque region of northern Spain. Bolivia is small for a country with a land area of 424 164 square miles just a little smaller than Alaska. Bolivia is a landlocked country situated in the center of South America with the Andes Mountains on the west and the jungles of the Amazon basin on the east. It can be divided into three topographical zones one the antiplano which is a high plateau that crosses the country from the northwest to the southeast, and splits the Andes into two mountain chains, or cordilleras. The plateau cradles the highest navigable lake in the world, called Lake Titicaca. Two, the Yungas are made up of sharply tilted mountain valleys that separate the higher plateau from the lowland plains. Three, the Iyanos, the lowland plain, is in the southern region and is also a highly developed agricultural region, in addition to having Bolivia's major deposits of oil, natural gas, and iron ore. To the northeast of the Ianos region, the plains form part of the Amazon River basin, containing tropical forests and dense vegetation mixed with open savanna. Lake Titicaca is located in the Antiplano. It is one of the highest lakes in the world. It is located on the borders of Bolivia and Peru. It has important folkloric history because, according to legend, the Inca Empire had its beginnings on the Island of the Sun and the Island of the Moon. Copacabana is the most important center of Titicaca Lake. Copacabana was originally a pre-Columbian ceremonial and astrological observation center destroyed by the Spaniards. In its place, a Moorish colonial church with a wooden sculpture of the beautiful Virgin of Copacabana was built in the 16th century. Its altar is lined with gold and silver, and the costumes of a small image are covered with jewels from the colonial period. Bolivia gained its independence from Spain on August 6, 1825, and is named for the liberator Simón Bolívar a Venezuelan general who liberated five South American countries from Spanish rule. Bolivia is located right in the center of South America, right between the Andes Mountains of Peru and the jungles of Brazil. Before Bolivia gained its independence from Spain, the Spanish usurpers removed millions of tons of silver from the mines of Potosi. Potosi was referred to as Querorico, Rico, meaning rich mountain. According to legend, silver was discovered at Potosi in 1544 by Diego Hualpa, who climbed a mountain in search of lost llamas. The Spanish, quick to investigate rumors of natives with silver, took possession of the mountain peak and Potosi was founded in 1545. Within 25 years, it was the largest city in the New World. With a population of 160,000, it was larger than London, Paris, or Madrid. Riches poured out of the mountains into Spanish coffers, changing the financial status of Europe. Potosi itself was awash in wealth. Spanish aristocrats in Potosi built themselves palaces and dozens of Baroque churches. But all this came at a terrible price of human misery. The mines were operated by enslaved natives who died by the thousands in the depths of the earth. It has been estimated that enough silver was extracted from Rico to build a bridge from Potosi to Madrid. Before the Spanish arrived, what is now Bolivia was part of the Inca Empire. Today approximately 75-80% to 80% of the population of Bolivia are Inca or pre-Inca descendants. Native Inca peasant farmers speak Quechua, the official native language of the Incas, or Aymara, a pre-Inca language, while the Caucasian population speaks Spanish. Bolivia has the highest indigenous population of all the Latin American countries, and for this reason has a very distinct caste system. In the past, either you were a servant, or you had servants. In the middle of the 20th century, a middle class emerged and is growing steadily. It is still common today for the upper class and wealthy Caucasians to have servants. The economic and social events that shaped the second half of the 20th century began with the Revolution of 1952, which nationalized the mines at a time when the business of Bolivia's three power mining magnates was already in decline. Universal suffrage was adopted between 1952 and 53, and an ongoing agrarian reform broke up many of the land holdings. This revolution was triggered by popular movements among peasants, many of them veterans of the Chaco War, and miners who worked under extraordinarily primitive and oppressive conditions and whose life expectancy was fewer than 40 years. Following a succession of dictatorships between the mid-60s and 1981, Bolivia's new democratic government was beset by a bizarre attack of hyperinflation. The Popular Participation Program, initiated in 1993, attempted to redistribute a part of Bolivia's wealth and enfranchise the country's heretofore abandoned rural municipalities. Bolivia's political instability and frequent military and civilian coups between 1964 and 1981 was a part of a general trend in much of South America. In the early 1980s, Bolivia became a relatively tranquil and stable country, and in fact the safest in all of South America for a foreign visitor. My grandfather, Gil Angel de Gumusio, the oldest son of José Gil and Maximiliana, was born in Chile in 1854. He married Ana Costa Dentenza Cespedes on June 6, 1890. Their only child, my father, José Luis Gumusio, was born on December 15, 1892. Anna died in 1896 during a worldwide epidemic of tuberculosis. Having lost his mother at the age of four, my father was raised by his maternal grandmother. He learned a carpenter's trade and by the age of 26 had already opened his own furniture shop when he married Maria Carenes on December fifteenth, 1918, in Cocobamba, Bolivia. Thirteen children were born to Jose and Maria, but only six lived to adulthood. The infant mortality in South America was very high during the first third of the 20th century, as it was worldwide. Being the youngest of 13 children, I don't know much about my parents when they were young. By the time I was born, they pretty much worked all the time, so they could send money to my older brothers who were studying in Argentina, Brazil, and the United States. My father, when I knew him, was a short, bald man with very expressive, hazel eyes. He was an unpretentious, personable, and generous man who loved people and they loved him. I have been told that he liked to dance, and my parents always had big parties to celebrate their birthdays and anniversary. My father was a very strict, honest, and moral man, and his word was law. He was an excellent provider. He valued education and worked all his life to provide his children the opportunity for higher education and professional careers. Although he started as a simple carpenter, he built up a good reputation and eventually opened the first state-of-the-art, electrically-mechanized furniture factory in Cochabamba, with most of the equipment being imported from Germany and Switzerland. At the height of production, he had more than 50 employees. In July 1960, he was planning a trip to the U.S. to visit my brothers and me. I was attending junior college in Kansas City, Kansas, when he suddenly died. I was so shocked and so angry about his death because it could have been so easily prevented. He died of a strangulated hernia, normally not life-threatening, but in his case, fatal due to delayed medical attention. Having lost my mother only two years earlier, I was devastated by his death. I rushed home to Bolivia as soon as I heard the news, but due to bad connections and flight delays, I was too late for his funeral. Only when trying to organize his affairs and settle his estate did I realize how much his children's education had cost him. He sold almost everything except for our house in Cochabamba and the furniture factory. My mother was a middle child. She had an older brother and a younger brother. Although she was fairly young when her father died trying to break up a street fight, she devoted herself to rearing her younger brother. My family was wealthy enough to have a cook, a housekeeper, and a nanny for the children, which gave my mother the time and opportunity to pursue her own interests. When a friend of my father offered her the chance to sell yard goods at the local open-air markets, she took advantage of the opportunity. During this time, and even today, to a great extent, much of the retail business in Bolivia was carried out in open-air markets called mercados. My mother would sell her yard goods in the markets of the small towns surrounding Cocobamba. She sold a huge variety of fabrics, from the most ordinary cotton muslin to the most lavish, special occasion fabrics, like silks and satins used for party dresses and wedding attire. When my mother first started selling fabrics, before I was born, business was good, because people made everything. In addition to clothes, they made their own tablecloths, Sheets, bedspreads, curtains, blankets, slipcovers, etc. After I was born, and in particular by the time I was a teenager, ready made textiles were readily more available, so the demand for certain fabrics lessened, and as the number of fabric vendors grew, my mother's business began to decline. After a long day at the market, especially if it was late, we would sometimes go to our summer house at the orchard to spend the night. The women would talk about their day at the market, while the men would be telling jokes around a crackling fire, and we would have hot tea or hot milk with fresh-baked bread and homemade cheese. It was a very peaceful time, and I enjoyed being there with my family. The dancing flames of the fire always sparked my imagination, and I would see all sorts of things as I sat and gazed into the flames. Somehow, the tranquil environment of the summer home made me feel safe and secure. The time spent out at the farm are some of my dearest childhood memories. It was a very special place for me. My mother continued this business until her health failed. In 1956, she had a stroke which left her partially paralyzed. A second stroke left her an invalid, and she finally passed on in 1958. I was in high school at the time of her illness, and although we had servants, I helped my father care for her. It was sad to see her so dependent and helpless, just like a child. I used to help my father bathe and dress her, change her bed linens, and carry her to the bathroom. Caring for her made me realize that I was doing for her all the things that she had done for me when I was a child. Life had gone full circle, and now the child was caring for the parent. My mother died when I was a senior in high school. Other than short trips inside Bolivia, We spent our lives in Cocobamba until we were ready for college. Then we were sent abroad to continue our education. Since my father was all alone after my mother's death, I wanted to stay in Cocobamba and study there, but he opposed that idea, and I was put on a plane to the U.S. It was an enormous shock being separated from my family and friends. Luckily, I had brothers to help me adjust to the new environment and culture. As a young child, I spent most of my time in the company of my nanny. Since my brothers were between 10 and 15 years older than I, I was reared very much like an only child. My nanny was hired soon after I was born and was hired just to take care of me. Partly because of the altitude and partly because everything had to be prepared from scratch, meal preparation was very labor-intensive. Breakfast was usually a light meal, bread or toast— butter, jam, cheese, fruit, and sometimes oatmeal and milk or coffee. As soon as breakfast was over, the cook started preparing for lunch, which was the biggest meal of the day. A typical lunch would include a three- or four-course meal and would include an appetizer, soup, salad, and a main course. At 10 a.m., people usually took a break from work and had saltinas, a baked turnover-type pastry filled with either beef or chicken, hard-boiled eggs, olives, and vegetables. After lunch was the time for a short siesta. Shops were closed from noon to 2 p.m. Desserts and sweets were normally eaten at tea time around 5 p.m. Dinner was also a light meal and generally served around 7. My childhood home was located a block and a half from the main square or plaza. Homes of my childhood days were typical Spanish colonial style. They were made of stucco with terracotta tile roofs. Two-story homes normally had a central patio and several balconies, usually overlooking the street. One-story villas, such as ours, could have several patios and ramble on and on in many directions. It has always been the custom for the property to be walled in. A typical wall was about six feet high and twelve inches thick. Broken glass on top of the walls discouraged anyone from trying to climb over. Etiquette, table manners, and courtesy were very important when I was growing up. We had to wash our hands before every meal. We always asked to be excused from the table. We ate whatever the cook prepared, because if we said we didn't like something, my father would tell the cook to prepare that food for an entire week. Then everyone in the house was upset with you because they had to eat the same thing, too. It didn't take long to learn to eat what was on your plate. Serving bowls were not put on the table. Each plate was prepared in the kitchen and brought to each person at the table. When I was a child growing up, we never ate with our hands, and we never ate sandwiches. You never entered a room without greeting everyone in the room with a hug and a kiss on the cheek. Besides my home in the city of Cocobamba, I recall how I loved to go to our summer home, a small farm and orchard just outside the town of Punata. I remember climbing the peach trees and picking fresh peaches. After I found the best peach, I would sit on the limb of the tree, peel the peach with a small knife I always carried in my pocket, and eat it right there in the tree. My mother also loved the summer house, and she would always take some coffee, sugar, and other hard-to-find staples to the caretaker and his family because they took such good care of it. Taste and smell are very acute senses, and they usually create the strongest memories. Besides the great food associated with my childhood memories, I remember the smell that greeted us when we arrived at the summer home. Mother had jasmine, gardenias, and honeysuckle planted around the front porch, and there was always some sweet aroma in the air to greet us. For me, the summer house was a little piece of heaven, and when I picture it, I see myself surrounded by beauty, good smells, good food, and good companionship. I see a happy, tranquil place that nourished the soul. Every time I smell honeysuckle or jasmine, I am transported back to that wonderful place. I started first grade at the age of seven. At that time, we didn't have kindergarten. The unstable political environment often affected our education. If there was a long or violent revolution or uprisings that occurred close to the end of the school year, schools were closed. When this occurred, especially at the end of the school year, we were automatically passed on to the next grade, without ever having to take final exams. Holidays in Bolivia can be classified as patriotic or religious, with a lot of folkloric traditions mixed in. Bolivian folklore is one of the most colorful in the world, and the local people celebrate many festivals each year. It is one of the richest countries in traditions, rites, costumes, dances, and customs that have been maintained since the colonial days. There are over 200 different dances within our folklore. Copacabana is one of Bolivia's most important religious shrines, a Moorish-style cathedral built between 1610 and 1612. Many miracles have been attributed to the black wooden statue of Mary. The altar is covered with silver and gold, and the robes of the Virgin are encrusted in jewels, silver, and gold from the colonial period. During Holy Week, the faithful make a pilgrimage to Copacabana to climb the mountain known as Cavalry. The climb to the top is about an hour or longer, depending on how much time you spend at the fourteen stations of the cross that line the path. At Easter, many of the faithful climb the mountain on their knees— or carry heavy stones on their backs as a sign of suffering and penance. Although I have fond memories of these fiestas and celebrations during my childhood, I also have some frightening memories. Bolivia, being a very unstable country politically, was always having revolts or military coups. There were also riots incited by the communists trying to gain a foothold in the country. I remember going out into the street after one of these clashes and seeing bullet holes in the walls surrounding our house and puddles of blood on the streets. I was horrified and worried that I might get hurt in one of these fights since our house was only a block and a half from the governor's office on the main plaza. When I was growing up in Bolivia, we only had primary and secondary schools. We were not required to go to kindergarten and we did not have junior high. Primary school was grades 1 through 6, and secondary school was grades 7 through 12. Even though grades were classified as primary and secondary, they were usually all taught in the same complex. High school was a time when we were establishing our own independent social lives. It was customary to have a party when we turned 15 called a quinceañero. During my years in high school, I mainly participated in sports, soccer and gymnastics. I worked out on parallel bars and high bars. I wanted to build muscles like all adolescent boys. My senior year in high school was my most active and fulfilling. I participated in student government and was the president of the student body of my high school. I was also secretary of exterior relations in an organization of students from all the local high schools. We lobbied the government to improve secondary education by improving curriculum and equipment and helping out the teachers. Besides school organizations, I also belonged to a religious-oriented political organization that formed to protect the Catholic doctrine against communism. Communism had been spreading throughout the world after World War II, and South America was no exception. The communists were trying to gain a foothold in Bolivia, the center of South America, so they could branch out to other countries. In the early 50s, Bolivia had many political parties, including a socialist party and a communist party. The communists used to hold rallies and spread propaganda against the Catholic Church. Because so many people, even the socialists, were devout Catholics, riots would break out. Communist organization was strong in the universities and was slowly spreading to the high schools. As high school students opposed communism, we would often come to blows over some inflammatory remarks made by the communists against the church. Fistfights would break out in the streets, and sometimes the police would come with tear gas to break them up. The clashes between university students, the labor unions, and the communists were much more violent. I thought I would like to go to law school at the university and go into politics after I graduated. My mother had passed away by that time, and I pleaded with my father to let me stay in Bolivia and go to law school. Besides, I didn't want to leave him all alone. Maybe it was because politics in Bolivia were so unstable, or maybe it was because I was so involved with the anti-communist movement, or maybe it was because he really thought I could get a better education elsewhere. He said no and put me on a plane to the USA. When I left Bolivia, I was very sad, because I didn't want to leave my father all alone. I remember seeing my father through the window of the airplane. He seemed sad, but at the same time he had a look of pride and satisfaction about him, probably because he was sending his youngest child off to receive a foreign education, just as he had done with all the others. I could not have possibly known that this was the last time I would ever see him. I arrived in Miami on May 30, 1958, my 19th birthday. I was excited to be in the U.S., but at the same time a little apprehensive. I had never been completely on my own. I was all alone, spoke no English, and was beginning a trip that would change my life. Little did I know just how much. My brother, Mario, was working at Bethany Hospital and helped me get a job as an orderly, I was making $1.25 an hour and made enough money to pay my tuition at Kansas City, Missouri, Junior College, where I enrolled for English classes. My education was interrupted by my father's unexpected death. I returned to Bolivia in July 1960 and stayed until just before Christmas. After I returned to the U.S., I realized that my father's death had left me without money for my tuition, and I would have to earn the money for my own education. I worked two jobs and saved enough money to start school in the fall of 1961. I graduated from junior college in 1962. I worked and attended college part-time until 1965, when I got a full-time job at Kemegro Corporation as a research technician. I also married in 1965, and our first son was born in 1967. I finally graduated from the University of Missouri at Kansas City with a degree in biology in 1968. It took me ten years to get my degree. There were times when I thought it was too demanding and that it would be a lot easier just to quit school and work full-time. Then I would remember how important education had been to my father and how he had sacrificed to educate his children, and I would continue for a while longer. I have to admit, I had an enormous sense of accomplishment when I received my degree. I also realized that if I could persevere this long to get my degree, that I would accomplish anything I wanted. In the two years, from 1958 to 1960, my life and my goals for the future changed drastically. In Bolivia, I had wanted to go into law school and go into politics. When father sent me to the U.S., I thought I would like to become a doctor. I had always liked to help people. When my father died, my goals changed again. In the end, all I wanted to do was get my degree so I could earn a good living and support a family. My wife Billy and I were married in 1965. We had met one and a half years earlier when she was moving out of a house and my roommates and I were moving in. Our courtship was quite stormy. We were both trying to make our way in the world and I might add, having a pretty rough time doing it. I was working, going to school, and trying to manage problems that came up from time to time regarding our property in Bolivia. She had only come to Kansas City two months earlier, had already moved twice, and changed roommates, and was trying to get acclimated to the new city and her new job. We both appeared pretty independent on the surface and had our share of disagreements. We were married at Our Lady of Good Counsel Catholic Church in Kansas City on September 4, 1965. The wedding was beautiful, and it was everything I had expected. We were married at the main altar during a full mass. Billy is a very loving and giving person. She has more patience than anyone I know. We have lived most of our married life trying to figure out exactly what our roles are. We are what I call the transition generation. We were reared in the old tradition where the father was the breadwinner and the mother was the homemaker, but when we got married the roles started changing, and they continued to change throughout our married life. What was expected of the husband or wife was often unclear. When I look back on our life, I realize now that when it came down to making career choices, it was she who always made the ultimate sacrifice. She was very intelligent and extremely artistic, she could have had her choice of several great careers, but she chose to devote herself to our children and to me. I would not have been able to do some of the things I have done if she had not been there supporting me. I am the idea man, and she takes care of the details. We have our differences, but we make a good team. We have three sons. They were all born during our years in Kansas City. I must mention that when the boys were small, we lived in Bolivia for about six years, and this definitely influenced who they are today. They are all bilingual. They are all people-oriented, friendly, and outgoing. They all enjoy meeting people from other cultures and have friends of different nationalities. They love to travel, but family is important too, and they make it one of their top priorities. Charles, the oldest, is very intelligent and has a fantastic memory. He loves to read and would make a great Jeopardy! contestant. He marches to the beat of his own drum and is not too concerned with what is considered the norm. Rick, the middle son, is the jock of the family. He played high school football and loves sports. He works for a trucking company as vice president of customer relations. Eddie, the youngest, is sort of a mix of the other two. He has backpacked extensively throughout Europe and South America he works as the manager of a music department in a retail store so he can pursue his love of music. Most of the events that greatly affected my life were unexpected, but I must say that one of the most pleasant was the chance to return to Bolivia in 1976. I was offered a position to work with Aquila, a company formed under the Andean Pact of 1969 to manufacture pesticides in Bolivia. I was able to develop and oversee the quality control laboratory of a pesticide plant in the Antiplano, the Andean Plateau. I accepted the offer and went to La Paz in November of nineteen seventy six. In January, I came back to Kansas City to accompany Billy and the boys to La Paz. We lived in La Paz for six years. The opportunity was a twofold blessing. First, I was able to work in my country on a project that would be of enormous economic benefit for my countrymen. Secondly, my wife and children had the opportunity to experience firsthand the culture and environment of my youth. Actually, Billy and the boys adjusted to life in La Paz much easier than I did. Maybe my expectations of returning to Bolivia were unrealistic, clouded by my childhood memories. Or maybe it was due to the fact that when I left Bolivia I was a youth, and now returning as an adult with the responsibilities of a family, or maybe it was the apprehension that my family would not like Bolivia. Whatever the reason, I had a much more difficult time in the beginning than they did. Since I had not the time to teach either Billy or the boys Spanish, I am sure that upon their arrival they felt very much the same as I did as I arrived in Miami. The boys started school two days after we arrived, not knowing a word of Spanish. What a shock it must have been. They all adjusted quickly and picked up the language within a few months. They soon came to love the country and the people just as much as I did. Most of all, they loved the food. On the surface, Bolivia had developed a great deal since I left, but where it truly counted, in the political structure and the educational system, It was pretty much the same Bolivia of my youth. Communism was no longer a threat, but power-hungry, greedy politicians were. After six years, the pesticide plant had failed to materialize, and my dream of doing something worthwhile for my country was unrealized. Due to a failing economy and aging children, we decided to return to the U.S. in 1982. However, my family loved Bolivia, and I think they considered it their home just as much as I did. That meant a lot to me. Since it had been more than three years, since my last trip to the U.S., my visa had expired. First, we applied for a new visa. Then, in June of 1982, we sent the boys to Springfield to live with Billy's parents. We had decided we did not want to go back to Kansas City because of a rising drug problem in big cities and also because the Kansas City school system was having a lot of problems. The boys were 15, 12, and 10 when we put them on the plane to Springfield in 1982. When I saw them board the plane early that morning, I instantly recalled my trip to Miami and recalled my father standing there seeing me off. Now I was the father, and I was sending my children to the States, and who knew how long it would be before I would see them again. I finally received my visa in August 1982, and we packed what we decided to keep and came to Springfield. I felt confident I would be able to find employment in Springfield because I had worked in the field of pesticides for both Chemagro Corporation and Aquila. I also worked for Kansas City, Missouri Water Department for seven years as a laboratory chemist. In September of 1982, a taste and odor problem caused by a high concentration of algae in McDaniel Lake provided the opportunity for a part time position in the laboratory of Blackman Lab of City Utilities Water Department. I worked there part time until April 1983, when I became a full time employee. We came to Springfield in August 1982, really not knowing what our future would hold. We had family in Springfield. The school system was highly rated, the drug problems were minimal, and it was a lovely city with lots of trees, close to lakes, and really not that far from Kansas City, so we decided to give it a try. This was the third time in our life that we had started over and we knew it would be difficult, but we were confident that we would make it. We loaded up our belongings and started out toward Springfield. We were so looking forward to seeing our boys. It had been almost two months since we had sent them to live with their grandparents. They had been enrolled in summer school, and we were anxious to see how they had adjusted. Now that we were all together again, we were ready to conquer the world, or at least Springfield. The boys started school the last week of August, and Billy and I started looking for employment. By the middle of September, which seemed like a lifetime, we were all disenchanted and depressed. The boys didn't like school because they didn't have any friends, and they missed their old friends in Bolivia. I hadn't found employment, and I was also ready to go back to Bolivia. This was turning out to be much harder than I thought. We had decided that Billy should stay home until the boys were settled in and felt comfortable with their new life. We had a family meeting, and Billy suggested that we wait six months, and if we were still unhappy at the end of six months, Then we could go back to Bolivia. I think she knew we wouldn't want to go back after six months, but I also know that she would have gone willingly if we had decided to do that. Although the boys were all born in Kansas City, they were pretty young when they went to Bolivia, and that's basically all they remembered. In America, they felt like outsiders, not just because they were going to a new school, but because the whole culture was different. In a way, they were treated as foreigners. By the fall of 1983, we were pretty much settled in. No more talk about returning to Bolivia. The younger boys had joined Boy Scouts, and everyone was doing well. Billy went back to work, and we bought a house. I was eventually inducted into the Boy Scouts as an assistant troop leader. I never had much camping experience, and I learned right along with the boys. I worked, Billy worked, the boys went to school and we enjoyed life in Springfield. I would have to say my experience in Springfield has been happy. I have encountered very little discrimination, and most of the people I have met seem to like me. Everyone's situation is unique, and I would say that three things helped me acclimate myself easier than a lot of other people. The first is that I came to the U.S. when I was young, when I was very adaptable. The second is that I received part of my formal education here, And the third is that I am married to a North American. I think people who immigrate with a family have a much harder time than I did. Because of our unique family background and our love of knowledge and new experiences, I feel that we have given our children a more tolerant perspective of the world. Being a Hispanic father of three all-American boys is a unique experience in itself. Since they have grown up, they have all had the opportunity to travel and meet people from different cultures and different religions in their life. I am looking forward to my retirement. Hopefully, Billy and I will have a chance to do some major traveling in Europe, Asia, and Australia. I feel fortunate now to have some time to do volunteer work and help with less I feel fortunate now to have time to do some volunteer work and help less fortunate people. Helping people is something I always wanted to do. It makes me feel good, and it makes me appreciate what I have. I feel I have struggled a lot to get to what I have. If I can lessen someone else's struggle, I enjoy that. I always volunteer to be a participant in Day of Caring, and am fortunate to work for an employer that encourages community service. I am a member of Grupo Latino Americano, an organization for Hispanic people living in the Springfield area. This started out primarily as a social organization so Latinos could get together once in a while and have a good time with other Latin people in Springfield and the area. Through good organization, insightful leadership, and a lot of hard work, Grupo Latino Americano has been an important voice for diversity in the area. We give Spanish classes to English-speaking people, and we teach English to Spanish-speaking people. We help new Hispanic arrivals find employment and housing and offer financial assistance if necessary. We offer translation services for doctor, hospital, and emergency room care when needed. My faith has always played an important part in my life. It has sustained me through some very hard times. As a teenager, I was very involved in church services. After coming to the U.S., I attended services but somehow never seemed to have enough time to actively participate in church-sponsored groups or activities. Now I have more time to devote to the church by taking an active part in the services, usually at 11.30 Mass, as either a greeter or a Eucharistic minister. On Saturday mornings, I conduct scripture study at the Federal Medical Center for the Spanish-speaking inmates. Most of all, I enjoy spending time with my grandchildren who live here in town. They are a joy, and they really keep me on my toes. They like to go for walks in the woods, and we find all kinds of creatures and flowers that they have to bring back to the house for Grandma. When I retire, our big project will be to build a treehouse. They have really been a blessing in our lives. They keep us young, and they keep our minds sharp. I look forward to seeing them grow and I hope I will be around to dance at their weddings. My mission in life was always to fulfill my father's dream and get a good education. When I succeeded and received my B.S. in 1968, I think that was one of the high points of my life. I had seen how hard he had worked and how much he had sacrificed to educate his children, and even though he died right after I came to the U.S., I wanted to succeed for him. This dream kept me going and sustained me through a lot of hard times. Then I got married, and my mission changed. My new mission was very similar to the old one, but this time it was for my own children. I worked hard so that they would have the opportunity for a good education. I wanted them to know my background and appreciate my culture. I am grateful to my loving wife who supported me, encouraged me, and helped me to accomplish both of these goals in my life. I have lived in different cultures. I have struggled to accomplish dreams of both my parents and myself. I have tried to provide opportunities for my children so they can appreciate people of different cultures and be tolerant of life. However, the most rewarding aspect of my life has been to be a part of a family who loved me. My parents, my brothers and sister, my wife. My in-laws, my children, my daughters-in-law, and my grandchildren have all given me their unconditional love and support. Whether I succeeded or not, I always knew that I was loved. I think we have made great strides in accepting cultural and religious diversity. I hope that future generations will continue the integration of different cultures into their lives. When we reach the point that we can accept an individual for who they are, their likes and dislikes, their ideas, dreams, and actions, and not even consider where they were born, then we will be truly diverse. I hope this comes sooner rather than later, and I hope it comes without a lot of war and bloodshed. We often feel that we are insignificant and cannot change things around us. If we are good parents and educate our children to be good citizens and to be tolerant of cultural diversities, they, in turn, will pass this on to their children then we will have made a difference by educating one person at a time we can overcome the hate and mistrust of ignorance This is an edited version of Gumusio's story. You can read each story in its entirety at thelibrary.org or by clicking the link in the description of this post. The story keeper for Reynaldo Gumusio is Jose Gumusio. Music is Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Colin Carr at freemusicarchive.org under an attribution, non-commercial, no derivative, 3.0 United States license. Story excerpts edited and read by Diana Dudenhaefer.